message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, do not be... uh, Bashful about using your table of contents, that's what it's there for, but the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for who King David's son was. Who was King David's son? Second, be listening for a story about being bored. A story about being bored. And third, be listening for why the gospel story is so unique. Why is the gospel story so unique? Well, this morning we're beginning a new five-week sermon series considering our five core values as a church. If you've been around Trinity Grace for a while, you know that we normally like to camp out in a specific book of the Bible, crafting our sermon series around systematically moving through entire portions of God's Word. And while that's our normal practice, and we believe it's most healthy because it allows us the opportunity for exposure to the whole counsel of God's Word, from time to time it is beneficial to consider certain individual topics, while staying rooted in God's Word all along the way, of course. And that's what we're going to be doing on Sunday mornings through Labor Day here at Trinity Grace. And as we consider our core values over the coming weeks, It is our hope that those of us who have heard these values before, who've been here from the very beginning, might be encouraged as they see something new and beautiful about how they guide our church. And for those of you who haven't dug deep into our core values, it's our hope that you might come to appreciate what we feel called to embody here as a local expression of Christ's church in Northwest San Antonio. Most of you will know that ingredients are a very important part of uh, trying to create certain dishes and certain meals. The ingredients are the things that meld together in order to produce the final product, which is hopefully attractive and delicious and nourishing. And some of you will know how detrimental it can be to use the wrong ingredients in a recipe or not to have certain ingredients that should be used. It can completely mess up the meal, right? can ruin the beauty of the presentation. It can even make people sick. Well, through this five-week sermon series, I want us to consider the ingredients that we hope are being accentuated here at Trinity Grace. The values that provide a recipe for what we do and what we hope to become as a church. And it's a good image to have in mind because some of you are here this morning and you have been with us from the very beginning. You remember meeting on Sunday evenings at Cardinal Montessori School for eight months back in 2017 as we crafted our core values, as we got excited about them and dreamed of what God might do through a new church in Northwest San Antonio. You might say you helped bake the cake, right? You know the ingredients we used. But since then, we've had dozens and dozens of folks join us, which is amazing. Really thankful for that. And to continue the analogy, it's our hope that new folks enjoy the taste of the cake that we've baked, right? But it's important to go back from time to time to understand and to appreciate the ingredients that we use to produce the product we all hopefully enjoy today. 
And that's what this series is intended to do in many ways. To help us all appreciate the ingredients that we have found important here at Trinity Grace from the very beginning. And the ingredients that we hope to continue using as God brings new growth and ministry opportunities our way. And this morning, as we consider our first core value, we're going to turn our attention to a passage from the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. This book was written by King Solomon, who was David's son. And you might remember that we've highlighted David this summer because we were looking at the Psalms and he was the author of many of the Psalms that we read. We talked about how David was likely the most well-resourced man in the known world at the time which would have been right around a thousand years before Christ came onto the scene, before Jesus entered the story. Well, David's son, Solomon, who writes what we're about to read, was even more well-resourced than his father, David. Solomon was king of Israel at the height of its prosperity and power and influence. The man who writes Ecclesiastes would have had wealth and influence and power beyond our imaginations. And that is pretty surprising given the book he writes is a reflection on how life and our experience in it is like a vapor. He calls it a mist, meaningless unless it's seen through the lens of understanding yourself as a finite, limited creature who is living before an infinite, gracious creator. That actually sets up our first core value pretty well. So let's turn our attention to God's word as it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You follow along as I read. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its own time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that his people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I'm not sure if there's ever been a formal study to confirm my suspicion, but I am of the conviction that one of the most common complaints prevalent among elementary to high school kids is the complaint, I'm bored. I'm bored. Now, if you're an adult here this morning, I know that our childhoods, our childhoods were all filled with excitement and creativity and fun, and we never would have made such a complaint growing up in our era, right? But the kids today, I mean, they're a new breed, right? A restless bunch who've lost the ability to find satisfaction with the beauty of life. It's easy to grow frustrated and pessimistic with this generation, with our kids. Of course, I'm kidding. If we're going to be honest this morning, we'd have to admit that we all struggle with boredom and cynicism in life, both as children and as adults. Boredom and frustration and cynicism is so normal in our everyday lives that it's gotten hard to even identify it sometimes. It's why we're so prone to mindlessly scroll through social media or binge Apple TV 
buy stuff that we really don't need, daydream about striking it rich, taking exotic vacations. It's why we gossip about other people, why we covet our neighbor's stuff, why we flirt with that coworker, why we get angry at the smallest inconveniences. So much of these propensities find their root in the fact that we are generally a group of people who are bored and cynical when it comes to how God might work in our lives. And this is curious because we've all been created in God's image. According to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has set eternity in each one of our hearts, whether we claim to follow Jesus this morning or not. We were made to hope and to wonder and to stand in awe of God and what he's doing in our lives. Now, many of us in this room would claim to believe in God. We'd even say we love God and we want to follow his ways. Yet, if we're honest, a lot of the time we're just kind of bored with life. We're not quite convinced that he's doing anything in us or through us or even really could. And this struck me a few years back when we were just starting to plant Trinity Grace and we were engaged in looking at some different demographic studies of our target area here in Northwest San Antonio. And one of the statistics that stood out was that over 90% of people in our target area, our friends and neighbors would claim to believe in God. Now, that shouldn't be too surprising given the nominal Christian culture that almost everyone was raised in. But what was surprising was that only around 60% of those same people in our target area claim to believe that God is actively at work in their lives. The studies that I looked at showed that increasingly a majority of our neighbors are having a harder time believing that God is at work in their lives and in this world. In other words, for many of our neighbors, they have lost any sense that God is active, that God cares that God is orchestrating events that happen, that nothing surprises him, that he is working all things out for the good of those that he loves. And I don't think it's just our neighbors who struggle to believe this. I think we struggle to embrace those truths sometimes as well. So you might understand why our first core value at Trinity Grace is what we've labeled transcendence. Transcendence. We want to be a community where everything starts with the belief that there is a God who created everything that we see, who's orchestrating every event in your life, who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you, who can work above and beyond your normal expectations because he is not constrained by any limitations, who is altogether holy and set apart and glorious. The very first core value that we hold to here at Trinity Grace is God is God. He is creator. He is completely other. And he deserves our worship and our praise. Now, 500 years ago, this whole core value of transcendence would have been useless. Because it was just a given. But in our culture, it's an important, even crucial starting point. I mean, it's no longer taken for granted that we live in uh, what we might Uh, call an enchanted world. And I I don't mean enchantment like magic. I mean enchantment like wonder and awe. There's things out there that we don't understand that we can't explain. Or a world where we're open to the supernatural, you might say, with a transcendent God who's controlling things. It's no longer taken for granted that there's a transcendent creator of the world and we are creatures of that creator. 
And as we continue through time, it just seems like this disenchanted world is going to continue to grow. And a good question for us to ask would be, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God 500 years ago, yet here in the year 2022, in some sectors of Western society, it is seemingly impossible for some people to believe in God? It's almost a cultural given that we have moved past the idea of a transcendent deity. It's not even questioned much anymore among our friends and neighbors. It's just the way that it is. In fact, some people look at the rejection of a transcendent deity as a maturity issue. They tell stories of moving away from God and saying things like, I grew up, I faced reality, I learned better. And these are viewed as stories of courage, the courage to face the fact that the universe is without transcendent meaning, without eternal purpose, without supernatural significance. So the convert to unbelief has grown up because they can handle the truth that our disenchanted world is a cold, hard place without real any significance or purpose. And ironically, there is something attractive about this loss of purpose in our society because if nothing matters, nothing is called for in us. Nothing's demanded of us. It allows us to be selfish. I mean, we get to decide what goals to pursue if God doesn't exist. When we suffocate the idea of a transcendent God, we get to do what we want for our own pleasure and our own comfort. Social scientists and theologians have picked up on this move away from the mysterious and the supernatural, this move away from the transcendent over the past few decades, and they've recognized that we now live in a world where you have to be able to see it, touch it, measure it, understand it for it to be real. You've got to be able to empirically prove it. There's no more room left for the possibility of the transcendent or the supernatural, the mysterious, the spiritual. There's no room left for wonder and awe in our culture. So we've moved from a group of people who embraced wonder and mystery and awe to a group of people who live in what some scholars call an eminent frame. A small, constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within the natural rather than the supernatural order. The physical rather than the spiritual. In this space, it pushes out the idea of transcendence altogether. It suffocates any sense of wonder and awe in our lives. In this imminent frame where the supernatural and the transcendent have been tossed aside, meaning and significance and fullness are sought within an enclosed, self-sufficient, naturalistic universe without any reference to God. In other words, we've enclosed ourselves off from God. Now, much of this worldview shift can be traced back to the Enlightenment. Okay, go with me just for another second where scientific and humanistic endeavors took off, leaving no more need for God, no more need for the transcendent. Increasingly, our culture doesn't accept the fact that God can intervene, that he can play an active role in today's world. Our culture tends to think that he might have been the architect that set things up, but we can take it from here. And it's really a rejection of God's personhood and his agency in our lives. And we've been flattened, in a sense, to the empirical, to what you can investigate, touch, and observe. 
And with this worldview shift, our culture has basically discarded the need for God and by so doing has really taken out any sense of meaning that came with the transcendent worldview. Interestingly, this is one reason why we shy away from lament, why we don't lament well as followers of Jesus, why it's hard for us to walk alongside God in our grief. It's because when terrible things happen in life, We think we can explain everything away with reason and with logic. But it turns out that humans intuitively know that they cannot live this way. We might say, along with Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that it's as though God has planted a sense of eternity or transcendence into people's hearts. James K.A. Smith says as much in his book entitled, How Not to Be Secular, where he writes this printed for you in the front of your bulletin. We can't tolerate living in a world without meaning. So if the transcendence that previously gave significance to the world is lost, we need a new account of meaning, a new imaginary that enables us to imagine a meaningful life within this now self-sufficient universe of gas and fire. In other words, without God, you have to create your own meaning. And against this backdrop, of a a culture that has given up a sense of the transcendent, it is increasingly hopeless and bored. We have an amazing opportunity to be a credible witness to the fact that the transcendent God is still a viable option for our friends and neighbors and our world. We get the chance to demonstrate what a community full of hope and wonder might look like. We get to stand as a witness that living in light of a transcendent God makes the most sense of the human experience in this fallen world. And in our passage, we see Solomon leading the way for us in this witness. He reminds us that God is infinite and we are finite. That God is creator and we are his creatures. That we live in a world that should be full of wonder where we can't know everything or explain everything away with reason or with science. And even though God is so infinite and transcendent that we can't always figure out what He's doing, He's also placed eternity into our hearts. He's given us an innate sense that He exists and that we were made for something so much grander than we can even comprehend. What we learn from Ecclesiastes is that we shouldn't be embittered by what we don't know and can't control. But so often we are. Instead, Solomon invites us to enjoy the gifts that we have in the midst of our lack of control. To live as dependent creatures in reliance on a transcendent God. We can't always understand everything. We don't know why we get sick. We don't know why jobs are lost. We don't know why wars rage. We are limited people. But we can trust in God's character and rest in his promises to us. We are called, along with Solomon, to humble reverence and awe towards God. Look, Solomon's world was large. He was a man of vast resources who was able to embrace the fact that he wasn't in control. And that did not shrink his soul, it expanded it. Instead of taking away from Solomon's experience in life, it actually counterintuitively made his life better. He was able to wonder, able to look at things with awe and delight, to appreciate them as gifts from God's hand. It freed him to live according to his design as a creature under the loving care of his creator. 
I like how the author and theologian Charles Taylor puts his finger on this when he says, folks that have given up the idea of God and the transcendence slowly find their actions, goals, achievements, and the like have a lack of weight, gravity, thickness, and substance. There's a deeper resonance which they lack, which they feel should be there. Look, we can try to sweep the idea of transcendence under the rug, but there is always going to be this nagging sense that we are missing something that should be there. This sense of missing something and longing for a fuller life is really summed up well by the atheist Julian Barnes when he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. People really feel this need for transcendence in important life moments, if you think about it. Think of all the important life moments that you've had. Birth, marriage, death being three of the most important ones. People, especially those who've rejected transcendence, those who've rejected God, strangely enough, continue to feel pressure and need to mark these passages somehow. These weighty life events have always been linked up with the transcendent, the highest, the holy, the sacred. It's telling that even people who have no affinity for religion go on using the rituals of the church for these occasions. That's curious. The fact is, we increasingly live in a world that is haunted with a sense of the transcendent, the supernatural, the sacred. We see that a desire for the spiritual endures even in a culture that rejects the spiritual. It's why you get lots of people identifying themselves by saying, I'm not religious. I've given up on the church. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that we're haunted by the transcendent because God has set eternity in the human heart. You get an anthropology here in Ecclesiastes 3. We're all made in his image. No matter how hard we try to shut the door on God and the transcendent, we can't because the longing is imprinted in each one of our hearts. David Foster Wallace puts his finger on this sense of longing for the transcendent in a speech he gave. And we mention this speech almost once a year here at Trinity Grace because it's so great. And many of you have heard it a number of times, but uh, if you're new this morning, you need to hear it. A speech that he gave at Kenyon College in 2005. And... Um, David Foster Wallace uh, was one of the generations, this generation's greatest short story writers, and he wasn't a Christian, um, but he was someone who was searching for meaning and fulfillment. And here's what he said in that commencement speech. Here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He goes on to say, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. 
They are default settings, he says. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on these default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Man, don't we know that to be true. People intuitively sense that the imminent frame that they've created and constructed is not strong enough to bear the weight of their souls. It's not grand enough for our desires and our longings. So we've seen that we live in a culture that has discarded the transcendent, yet people desperately long for it. They're haunted by the supernatural, the meaningful, the fulfilling. According to Solomon, eternity has been set in every person's heart. Now the question for us becomes, how can the church enter this space with love and with hope? One way we get to enter this cultural context is to set ourselves up as a community that continually testifies to the transcendent God, both individually and corporately. In many ways, this is going to make us light in a dark world in the truest sense. A beacon that continues to shine in the midst of the meaninglessness and hopelessness that our secular world experiences. We can faithfully offer another path, another take, another worldview that actually addresses people's intrinsic needs and desires. Psalm 107, which we read earlier or heard read earlier, speaks to how God is the one who satisfies the longing of our souls. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Look, it was Augustine, St. Augustine back in the 4th century who said that our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. Every person longs for God whether they would admit it or not. It's just that more often than not, people's longings are misplaced, are they not? We seek to find our longing for the transcendent God in created things like money or sex or beauty or experiences. Never stopping long enough to question or to realize that any created thing in this world is a counterfeit of the transcendence we were actually made to experience. You were made to experience far more than anything this world created could offer. God is the only one who can satisfy our longings for the transcendence, who can fill the hungry soul with good things, according to Psalm, the psalmist. In knowing what the Bible says about anthropology, about the human condition, and being able to discern that everyone we meet has eternity set in their hearts, the church is uniquely positioned to offer our culture things that it desperately wants. And needs. We can offer a confused world significance and meaning. We get the chance to tell people that they were made in God's image, 
that God is one who loves them and cares for them. That they have meaning not because of what they do or what they produce or how they behave. They have meaning simply because of who they are and because God loves them. We can tell them of a God who knows them intimately, knows everything about them, and instead of moving away from them, He actually moves towards them, loving them deeply. We can also offer our friends and our neighbors purpose in this world. We get the chance to tell people that they have purpose, purpose that's bigger than themselves. We believe that God's at work renewing all things. And so we get the chance to participate in that renewal, knowing that it's one day going to fully and finally be completed by Him. And because God is alive and in control and active in our lives, we can have purpose with our families and our vocations and our service. Our good works and our service can actually make an eternal impact. We believe that we're living in a God-shaped story. And as you look around the world, there are echoes of God all around us. We hear these echoes in our relationships, in a good meal, in an awesome experience maybe. Yet we often attempt to find ultimate fulfillment in these echoes. C.S. Lewis reminds us that these echoes are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we've never yet visited. We are a group of people who believe that we are all longing for the transcendent. We want to trace these echoes that we hear back to the source of a God who has made all things for his own glory and has a purpose for you in this world. This means that God has a purpose for everything that we experience. Whether you're healthy or sick this morning, whether you're rich or poor this morning, whether you are suffering or joyful this morning, we don't know why everything happens in our lives. But knowing that God is on the throne orchestrating all things means that we can walk through this world with wonder and curiosity, asking along the way, what might God be doing in this trial? What might God be doing in this joy that is forming me more in faith and in trust? Look, we are a community of people who believe that we're all longing for more, the transcendent, and who know that God has set eternity in the heart of every person. And people hear those echoes all around them all the time. They're haunted by those echoes, you might say. And we want to trace them. We want to trace them back to the source. So we long to be a community that tells the real story and to point people back to the source of their longings and desires. And that source is the God of the Bible, the transcendent God of the Bible. And it's the story of the scriptures, the gospel story that actually meet our desire. It's that story that expands our awe and our wonder, that invites us to live into areas of life that we can't explain fully but embrace because we know the character of God. The gospel story is so unique if you think about it. I mean, every other religion, every other worldview tells you that you have got to take yourself from the imminent to the transcendent. You're the one that has to do the work. It's your responsibility to make it happen. That if you work hard enough, maybe you can achieve a sense of transcendence or at least get a small taste. But Christianity, the gospel story, it tells us the exact opposite. It reveals to us that the transcendent has come to us. That the transcendent God has broken into the imminent frame that we have tried desperately to create so that we might have true meaning and purpose in relationship. 
so that we might be able to walk through this world in wonder, in awe of who God is and what he's doing. In the gospel, it's amazing. The author writes himself into the story. The creator becomes creature. The transcendent becomes imminent so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might be given purpose and meaning, so that we might know the love of God and live in deep joy. And as people come to hear that from us, I think it'll be very good news. We'll be speaking to people in ways that they need. And our hope and prayer is that the living God would be at the center of our community here at Trinity Grace and that people might find that strangely attractive. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and care in our lives. Thankful that we are your creatures and that you are currently orchestrating every single event that happens in our lives and in this world for our good and for the church's benefit. We pray that you would help us to believe that as we move through seasons of great excitement and great sadness. Help us to um, seek out ways to trace your hand uh, in the, the ways that you're at work in our lives increasing our trust and our faith in you and your promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.